Hello and welcome to Afternoonified, the podcast where we'd like to know if you have a second to talk about your eternal salvation. I'm Sarah. And I'm Emily. I'm not falling for that one again. Again? I mean, we were both in a call that was called Catholicism. No. Actually, no. I was thinking about that today. <laughs> Leave that out of the episode. <laughs> no, I was thinking about it today. Because I was thinking about the Moonies, which I, I'm not going to talk about, despite them technically having a female leader right now. Um, I was thinking about the Moonies, and I was like, it's so stupid. They have this one guy that they think like has all the answers. And then I was like, oh, the Pope. <laughs> <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> Um, I don't know if I brought it up specifically on this podcast, but I did date a Mooney for a hot second. I vaguely remember this. Like, didn't, wasn't he, like, forced into, like, one of those crazy group marriages? He did have an arranged marriage. I can't remember. Did he actually ever go through yes, with it? Yes, yes. Um, oh. Because we were talking one day, and we were talking about our parents, and he was like, yeah, divorce really mellows you out. And I'm like, oh, I didn't know your parents were divorced. And he's like, no, my divorce. And I'm like, oh, cool. <laughs> This is like, you were, what, 25? Yeah. Um, he might have been a little older. But. No, he was, he was my age. Um, but then he proceeded to tell me about the church he belonged to, because I thought he was just, like, super Christian, which, like, whatever. Um, but, no, his parents were married in one of the group marriages that the Moonies did at, at what, Madison Square Garden or some shit like that. And I was like, well, that's weird and i didn't really think much of it and then there was an episode of my favorite murder where karen was talking about the moonies and describing this and i was like oh shit (laughs) uh so ask a lot of questions ladies (laughs) anyway so uh, as you can tell we're doing cults with a twist i was gonna say very we're taking on cults but i mean you've done episodes on cults before technically yeah we we did my favorite cult and we did (sighs) it was right after the election and i think i blacked out that part of my life um yeah i remember you i wasn't part of the podcast at this time but i do remember listening to you like slowly losing your mind uh reading off the traits of of cult leaders um so we're gonna be talking about female cult leaders the ladies and uh, you don't really hear a lot about them um and you know you might wonder why and from what i can tell because there's no like hard and fast answer other than like weird sexism which seems to account for most of, like, why don't you hear about the women who did this? But there aren't a lot of them. And that's probably because cults tend to be about power over other people. And if I'm being, like, very honest, that kind of extreme need for dominance is more of a dude thing. Yeah, I, like, this is gonna go in some weird directions, probably. But I almost feel like it's something, like, men are socialized to believe they are, you know, cool and special and should be in charge of everything yeah and they need that kind of authority whereas women not aren't necessarily socialized in that same way so i think like women just don't kind of seek out that kind of power yeah Yeah. and i mean that doesn't mean that women don't go down that road and they can be just as destructive but with easily yeah but you see a lot more like online cults where like women are trying to like sell you something so that is less of I am the one true Lord. I have power over you and more of like, look what I can give you, which is a very like stereotypical, like female thing to, to, to focus on. So you don't hear about that as much. Like you don't hear about the MLMs of the world, like Mary Kay, probably a cult in some way, just not a destructive one. Yeah. MLMs. Well, go listen to, uh, the dream. I'll leave it at that. And when when women do have cults where they have that kind of power over people, they don't necessarily have the amount of notoriety and destruction as their stinky weird male counterparts. <laughs> I feel like they, again, this is overgeneralizing so badly, but like women can kind of keep it together. Yeah. Well, that's the, yeah. Yeah, you don't see that kind of like, well, I'll get into it in a second. So, like, Jonestown was a huge story because a ton of people died. And that's really the only part of the story you hear about unless you, like, dig into it. And the same with Heaven's Gate, which was actually started by a woman. And we'll talk about that mm-hmm. later. I have some opinions about Heaven's Gate. Oh, boy. And Om Shinrikyo also had, like, a huge, like, end of things where people were finally like, oh, shit, we got to do something. In the, um, uh, I forget their names, the, uh, the ones in, um, Antelope. Oh, the the Rajneeshis, which was, yeah, I was saying they weren't um, 
like their leader, the Rajneesh, was a male, but Sheila is a special um, bird. Sheila, yeah. <laughs> The one who was actually doing kind of the day-to-day management of the cult was, in fact, uh, crazy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Sheila was batshit. Um, I love hearing my grandma talk about Sheila because my grandma, like, was around <laughs> when that was a thing. And, like, she she saw the Rajneesh and it, all that stuff. I say, we're probably getting so far ahead well, of, like, sort of, the actual episode you um, But, like, Scientology and Mormonism, which are cults, also had the benefit of, like, masses of fo- followers that shoved them into legitimate religions. So they there's all this like it factor like this this one thing about each cult that was so insane that people talk about it a lot. <laughs> yeah. And also almost all of these cults had the benefit of a woman supporting them. Like that behind every successful man is a that kind of thing. So like mm-hmm. Jim Jones had Carolyn Layton who like took care of all of his fucking paperwork and like did discipline and like managed his shit. And his wife also did too, but she kind of jumped off that boat um, when things started getting weird. And like Scientology had Mary Sue Hubbard, who literally went to jail for that doughy dipshit. <laughs> and Manson had Susan Atkins and Squeaky and Mormonism with uh, Joseph Smith had his wife Emma Smith, who like backed him up. Like even in cults, women do most face of the, work. the burden of having all the emotional labor, <laughs> but they don't get the notoriety. <laughs> I. I digress. Boy, the world sucks. Okay. <laughs> so my my point is, like, the the too long didn't read for that whole thing is that you only hear about cults when really bad, weird shit happens. And for the most part, cults fully led by women don't have that level of insanity that will get them attention. Except when they do. Yeah. And that's what we're going to talk about. No one... No one's setting compounds on fire when a woman is in charge. That was a nice, nice deep cut. His name has escaped me. I just have a picture of Taylor Kitsch wearing reflective aviators in my head right now. Yeah, I honestly can't. Fuck. I know Waco. Waco. Yes, the uh, Branch Davidians. But, like, I don't... Uh, David Koresh? Yes. We got there. This information exists in my brain. I have absorbed and know it. Can't. This just recall. So we're going to do a little bit of a mix of female cult leaders because obviously i'm not going to talk about all of them um so you know we got the ones that had like crazy shit with children and and suicide cults and murder cults and good old-fashioned like didn't hurt anybody this is a legitimate religion cult so they, they come in every flavor it's just that they don't have that i hesitate to say it factor <laughs> no i think i think you're right unfortunately that's kind of it yeah Right now, I'm going to give everyone a trigger warning. We are going to talk about some pretty intense violence towards children and um, also suicide. So this might not be the episode for you if, if those things uh, bother you, which to be fair, they bother me. But like, I mean, I would hope they bother you. But, you know, some people have a higher tolerance than others for very good reasons. Yeah. So we're going to get one of the more fucked up ones out of the way first. So it'll be kind of like the first 10 minutes of Midsummer, where you're pretty sure you're never going to be happy again, and the rest doesn't seem so bad until it gets fucked up again. <laughs> uh, so we're going to talk about Anne Hamilton Byrne. A lot of hyphenated names, or hmm. at least two. Anne was born Evelyn Edwards in 1921, and she grew up in a one-road farming settlement two hours east of Melbourne, Australia, or Melbourne, Australia. Sorry. Say it right. Maybe spell it the way you want it pronounced. Um, So her mother, Florence, was originally from a place called Wandsworth, which is a great name, in South London. And I am very upset that that's not where Diagon Alley is. Right? I was going to say that is a Harry Potter town if I've ever heard of one. So Florence was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia after setting her hair on fire in the street and spent 27 years in a psychiatric asylum until she died there. We're off to a great start. Aren't we? Um, Hamilton Burton's father was an itinerant worker and she spent time that means he moved around a lot so um and spent a lot of time in orphanages as a child which as we learned from Marilyn, not Marilyn manson maybe <laughs> charles manson uh doesn't do a lot for a child no no you're missing some very important like socialization and just general development when you're in that sort of setting yep especially in the old old time days <laughs> yeah well when she, they did not give a shit she got married early, and then after the death of her first husband in the 40s, uh, she turned to yoga and Eastern mysticism as a way to cope. As any good white woman would do. 
No, no, exactly. She's like your stereotypical, like, fancy, like, white lady with the pearl earrings and the nice perfume and the, yeah. Um, so her bio kind of jumps around a lot because she was very good at just keeping her shit on the down low, mm. which is going to be very important later. So in 1964, Hamilton Byrne was leading weekly discussion meetings at an estate in some mountains, which I can't pronounce and I'm not going to try out of respect for the indigenous peoples of Australia. Anyway, some mountains uh, in the eastern outskirts of Melbourne. The home was owned by an Englishman slash parapsychologist slash physicist named Rainer Johnson, who held some questionable beliefs and theories that we're not going to get into because this episode isn't about him. (laughs) So she was giving like talks on spiritualism. Like this might be kind of a deep cut reference, but I am very heavily picturing Catherine Zeta-Jones in High Fidelity when John Cusack reconnects with her and he goes to the party and it's literally just her, like, with a cigarette gesturing and talking about, like, meaningless shit that I think she's making up on the spot. Sounds about right. She was did that for a while and then around 1968, she bought land to live on with her followers, which was named uh, Santinkatan Park. Yeah, Santinkatan park um in 1968 Say it with confidence santa nicotan i can't <laughs> there's a lot of t's in this so yes they purchased that land and then constructed a meeting hall called the lodge and the followers which was weirdly almost a quarter nurses and other medical professionals uh were referred to her yoga classes by raynor johnson and they liked what she was selling and decided yeah i'll hang out with this lady on a compound why not the 60s the hippie movement hasn't been killed yet (laughs) thanks charles manson so she also managed to recruit followers from new haven which was a local mental hospital oh good perfect place to go for new recruits yeah she managed to recruit people who worked there and also new members from the patients um who were administered lsd under the direction of two doctors who were also members of the group like this was not a good place to be it's like an old-timey mental hospital. Yeah, no thank you. Also, wow, you think if you, like, worked in a mental institution and, like, the patients are falling for, like, a call, do you would maybe think twice about it? But I, what I, I... Maybe tri- it didn't go in that order. Well, no, I think it was the doctors and, and stuff who worked there who were proselytizing to the mental patients. Great. Very healthy. Yeah, this woman will, will fix your shit. Obviously, yes. Uh, so, I'm sure you're wondering why they were following her. Just this random-ass, pretty blonde white lady who did yoga. First, she managed to convince them that she had the answer to all of life's problems uh, because yeah, generally she said, and maybe truly believed, she was the reincarnation of Jesus Christ and a living God, which seems oh, dear. very played out. Oh, dear. Yeah, I mean, be a little bit original. Yeah. So be Joan of Arc or something. <laughs> just be a, a, a arm of God. You don't need to be God. So, in her belief system, Jesus was said to be a great master who came down to Earth, and the group believed that Buddha and Krishna were also enlightened beings who similarly came down to help humans. And Hamilton Byrne claimed that she was also in this category of cosmic helpers. Which I guess isn't much different than Joseph Smith saying that he was a prophet, but... Yeah, you said her mom had paranoid schizophrenia? Yeah, that's why I I said that she told them and may have also believed. Uh, Yes, without further evidence, could go either way. Uh, One of her children, and that's in quotes, later said that the group's beliefs were a mixture of Eastern and Christian beliefs. So there's always that root in something people know, which is Christianity, and it makes them more comfortable. Mm -hmm. Um, So one of Hamilton Byrne's inspirations was Helena Blavatsky, a Russian-born medium who co-founded the Theosophical Society in New York in 1875. And Blavatsky's brand of Tibetan esoteric wisdom and mysticism was an influence of both your friend and mine, Aleister Crowley, and oh yes, and Adolf Hitler. Great, perfect, good combination. So I I haven't retained a ton of information about Blavatsky, who in herself could also be considered a female cult leader, but there's too much on her to really like get into in kind of one of these um, primer episodes. She didn't have the overtly racist and anti-Semitic thoughts that Hitler did. 
but he took her teaching as a jumping off point for his specific brand of of uh, fuckery. Very cool. She she wasn't a good person. Like I just want to make that clear. She was an asshole, but it's not like Hitler lifted her stuff wholesale. He played a right. big big part. She wasn't proto Hitler. No. So that was one of uh, Hamilton Burns' influences as well. So that kind of shows you where we're going. So all of this leads us to what makes the story special. Interesting. Between the years of 1968 and 1975, Anne Hamilton Byrne acquired 14 infants and young children. Oh, boy. I already don't like where this is going. You've alluded to mm-hmm. it enough, but also... Not, not, not great. So some of these children were actually children of the members of the family who had been just kind of inducted into it. Um, And Hamilton Byrne was like, these are my children now and you are their aunties and uncles. But others had been obtained through adoptions that were sketchy at best and arranged by lawyers, doctors and social workers who were in the group and could bypass the normal like red tape. Woof. The children's identities were changed using false birth certificates. Uh, and they were all given the surname Hamilton Byrne, which isn't her name, and I don't know where she got that name to change it to. But that's like your I mean, name it, is it Evelyn. does sound very proper. And her, yeah, but her her birth name is um, Evelyn Edwards, which sounds like like a. Did she get either of those names for from her husband? I actually don't know the name of her original husband, so that could be it. I just don't know why she changed her name to Anne. Well. It doesn't matter <laughs> in the grand scheme of we things. We could ask that about a lot of things she does, I'm sure. Uh, so they all had the surname Hamilton Byrne and were dressed alike, uh, even to the extent of their hair being dyed uniformly blonde or red, since Hamilton Byrne was a natural redhead. Uh, so the children, this is where it starts getting rough. If you're still listening and you're sensitive, like, please, dude. Um, so the children were kept in seclusion and homeschooled at Kai Lama which was a rural property that the group owned and referred to as Uptop. Uh, it was near Eildon, Victoria, which is near Melbourne, Mel- Melbourne, but my geography of Australia is not good enough to be more specific. So they, they were kept on a sec- separate compound from the one that they had purchased in 68. Um, so they were told that Anne Hamilton Byrne was their biological mother and knew the other adults in the group as aunties and uncles, as I said previously. Uh, They were denied almost all access to the outside world and subjected to discipline that included frequent, severe beatings, often for little or no reason, and also starvation diets. Not a great way to raise children. Mm. Um, Man, you're not going to like this. Uh, The children were frequently dosed with psychiatric drugs, such as diazepam, haloperidol... Uh, chlorpromazine and a bunch of other stuff that I can't pronounce. I mean, I'm not familiar with most of these, but they don't sound great. They're antipsychotics Ugh. and they're downers for the most part, uh, especially so like just hel- keeping them sedated. Yeah, especially like diazepam and haloperidol, because they can those can zone an adult out with a normal dose. Yeah. Um. So upon reaching adolescence, they were well, compelled, not forced to undergo an initiation ritual that involved being dosed with LSD. And while under the influence, the child would be left alone in a dark room uh, and visited only occasionally by Hamilton Byrne or one of the uh, psychiatrists from the group. Now, I've never tripped on LSD, but I can't imagine I'd want to be left alone in a dark room while on LSD. No, No, thank you. Uh, so she managed to operate this way in almost total secrecy for two decades. Good Christ. Yeah. So, I mean, they were out in the countryside of Melbourne. Like, Australia's huge. Yeah. No one's really paying attention because it's the 70s and no one gives a shit. <laughs> the family's motto was unseen, unknown, unheard. Ominous. Uh, at least until 1987. Uh, so Sarah Hamilton Byrne was expelled from the group by her quote-unquote mother, in 1987 because of rebellious behavior and arguing. Uh, So with the support of a private investigator, she involved the police. And as a result, a raid took place at Kai Lama on Friday, the 14th of August, 1987, and all the children were removed from the premises. Thank God. After the raid, and don't worry, it's going to get worse again. Oh, 
cool. Thanks. I was, I thought we were turning a corner, <laughs> sort of. It's not a big corner. It's more of like a slight veer to the left. Uh, so after the raid, Anne and her husband, Bill, escaped Australia and remained out of the country for six years. Uh, due to the work of Operation Forest, an investigation involving police in Australia, the UK, and the US, uh, she was arrested in June of 1993 by the FBI in Hurleyville, in the Catskills, in New York. They were quickly extradited to Australia and charged with conspiracy to defraud and to commit perjury by falsely registering the births of three unrelated children as their own triplets, though the charges were later dropped. So what did they finally nail her on? The Hamilton Burns pleaded guilty to the remaining charge of making a false declaration and were fined $5,000 each. No one, Not great. No one ever went to jail. Not great. There was just a bunch of lawsuits from children and ex-members that were settled, and Hamilton Byrne died in a nursing home in Australia in 2019 at the age of 93. Good Christ. Mm-hmm. She sounds like a piece of work, and I'm going to say that for everyone in this episode, I'm sure. I would like her to be played by Charlize Throne. In the film? Mm, I can see that. I'm picturing Nicole Kidman, but only Ooh. because she's on that new HBO show where she kind of plays a similar... Plays a cult leader, yeah. Yeah. I, I could yeah, I could see Nicole Kidman. She has that... She's got that kind of ethereal, like... Yeah. I, th- I think that's the I whole know. point. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would do anything Nicole Kidman told me to do. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So our, our, next, our next Bachelorette, and I'm sure you know her, your favorite and mine, Bonnie Lou Nettles. This isn't ringing a bell. Really? Am I supposed to know who Bonnie Lou Nettles is? Yes. Oh, oh, wait, yes. I I know her by, or I'm more familiar with her by a different name. But continue. (laughs) I won't spoil it. So, I bet you, the listeners, maybe you did, actually. We have similar taste in podcasts. Uh, I bet you didn't know that Heaven's Gate was actually not started by that bug-eyed little weirdo, Marshall Applewhite. Uh, At least not entirely. I wasn't going to bring her up since technically Applewhite did most of the heavy lifting in terms of making Heaven's Gate notorious, but Bonnie laid the foundation, so I think she's worth mentioning. So Bonnie Lou Truesdale, later Nettles, was born in Houston, Texas. Uh, She was raised Baptist, married, had four children, and in 1948, she graduated school and became a nurse, which might have happened before she had the children. Timeline was not clear. So she developed an interest in the occult, and in February of 1966, joined the Houston Lodge of the Theophysical Society, or Theosophical Society, uh, yeah. in America. Yes, and also attended a group centered upon channeling various non-corporeal entities via seance, which is a fancy way of saying they were summoning the spirits of famous people. Very cool. Uh, so in 1972, in the midst of a divorce, she met bug-eyed weirdo Marshall Applewhite. <laughs> Um, so Applewhite had already been divorced and lost his college teaching job because of an alleged extramarital affair with a male student. The two developed a friendship and then a partnership in what was called the Christian Art Center, where they offered classes in religion, art, and music. Understandably, they didn't get a lot of traffic and subsequently opened The No Place, K-N-O-W, um, which is a metaphysical center and a reflection of the theosophical and occult teachings that Nettles introduced Applewhite. And from what I can understand, um, Applewhite and Nettles both kind of felt like they didn't belong in society, mm-hmm. like because of their interests or just because of how their brains work. So they kind of connected over that and they got very, very close, like in a in a platonic way. Yeah. And that's going to be one of the main tenets of Heaven's Gate. Like Heaven's Gate was a cult for people who felt like they... Most cults are for people who felt like they didn't belong in society, but very specifically nerds who felt like they didn't belong in society and wanted that place to belong and yeah that 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 sounds accurate yeah and i'll get into it a little bit later because like i said when we started i have some opinions on heaven's gate that might be controversial i don't know i guess if i had to pick a favorite cult they would be my favorite cult like right up until that last like two years (laughs) yeah and i've got some thoughts on that too which i might get to later like but well, we'll Continue. talk about it when we when we get to the end of Bonnie. Um, literally. In 1973, Applewhite and Nettles left for Houston. No, they left Houston for the West Coast. I can read English words. Uh, so they slowly began to see themselves as 
the two witnesses mentioned in the book of Revelations, which is in the Bible, um, whose job was to spread... always the Bible. Yeah. All of these have roots in Christianity, for the most part. I think the only cult I can, like, truly think of that doesn't have some Christian bits in it is Om Shinrikyo, and that's because it was in Japan. Yeah. They saw themselves as these two witnesses whose job was to spread a message of judgment, and then they're martyred, and then they're resurrected and taken to heaven in a cloud. And they determined that the cloud in the Bible was actually a flying saucer, just the people who wrote the Bible didn't have the vocabulary for it. Didn't have the cultural context, too. Yeah. So, they believe that Jesus had ascended to heaven in a spacecraft, and that Applewhite had arrived on Earth from that same spacecraft, or the same realm that Jesus had been ascended to, and brought with him the Heavenly Father in the form of Bonnie Nettles. So, again, they are reincarnations of Jesus and God. It's been done before. Everyone does it. I mean, yeah. Technically the same thing. So, they began gathering followers in Los Angeles and then set out on on a literal tour that took them to Oregon... They did a lot of stuff in Oregon, um, to Chicago. I mean, where better to go to uh, just collect weirdos? Oh, for sure. They went to Illinois, and they were now calling themselves Bo and Peep. Um, they offered prospective members deliverance from Earth in a spaceship in the immediate future. And thanks to what I can only call light media criticism, <laughs> in 1976, Nettles announced that the doors to the next level were closed. You know, I can't yeah. believe I'm saying this but i i understand the appeal who who else wouldn't want to just ascend from this plane (laughs) exactly and a lot of their like work that they did was basically just disconnecting people from society like they had this big like kind of makeshift compound in a campground in wyoming question mark um where they just they hung out they meditated a lot like they weren't allowed to have sex or like all that kind of stuff and like they had a very utilitarian view on things because they believed that they were preparing themselves for the spaceship ride to the next level. Mm-hmm. So they weren't, like, there wasn't any, like, physical abuse. There wasn't any, like, that kind of thing. It was just a bunch of people watching Star Trek in the woods and, like, meditating. Yeah. And the members were free to leave whenever they wanted. Like, no one was making them stay there. There wasn't punishment if they left. Yeah, just from my general understanding, not not the same level of manipulation you see from a lot of cults. Oh, God, no. I mean, I guess I'll, I'll rephrase that. Not the same kind of, like, overt manipulation. There are ways to manipulate folks that are, you know, a lighter touch. Yeah. Yeah, it was very much like, you can be here if you want to be. You have to follow our rules if you're here, but, like, you can go home. So in 1977, a member received a large inheritance, and they began to rent houses to live in, but they've moved frequently to avoid attachments to any location or home. And they're kind of like the Jedi, if that makes sense. (laughs) Yeah. They also withdrew contact from family members and friends. But, again, if you wanted to be in the group, you couldn't talk to your family and friends, but you could leave the group and you could go back to your family. Yeah, and this, I guess, is where I was kind of getting at with, like, overt versus covert manipulation is just by being isolated from those folks, like that can do a number on you without having to threaten or cajole people to get your way. Like, yeah, just I mean, being in that insular group can mess with your head. Yeah. Even if it's not something yeah. intentional, like that does give you a certain mindset. Yeah. Um, Cause I know like Bonnie didn't want to fucking talk to her family. <laughs> so she didn't. <laughs> and then she was like, I think this would be good for everybody else. And Marshall Applewhite didn't want to talk to his family. So, in the early 80s, Nettles was diagnosed with cancer. In 83, she had an eye removed, but the cancer continued to spread, and it eventually affected her liver. And in June of 1985, she died in Dallas. And her death seemed to contradict the group's teachings of ascending body and all, but Applewhite Mm -hmm. was later able to explain that you couldn't take your human body to the next level, um, and that she needed to go ahead. And... He made up for it by saying that she was communicating with him constantly because the way they had it set up is that Bonnie would have all the big ideas. Mm-hmm. She was she was the idea lady. And then she would tell these things to Marshall Applewhite, who was, I guess, more charismatic. Um, so he would tell people. He would spread the word, but it was all Bonnie. So how Marshall made up for that is, like, he took on both roles, but was like, no, nope, Bonnie is still telling me. Yeah. Um, I guess he would say that... Was she tea or dough? Tea, I think. Tea is, they went by tea and dough later. Um, they also went by guinea and pig for a while. Anyway, 
that's how he kind of made up for her death and explained it. And I'm sure you all know what happened in 1997. I so, mean, there might be listeners who don't. Um, well, essentially, and this is an editorialized version, because again, opinions, uh, Marshall Applewhite decided that he was done. Maybe he was sick. Maybe he was just tired of being on the planet. Because like I said, these are people who didn't want to be a part of society because they felt like they didn't fit in. They didn't like where things were going. And they found some sort of solace in this group where they had their own thing going. And they had this belief that they would be able to ascend and and keep living, you know, on a spaceship somewhere as better beings. So Applewhite was kind of done with being on Earth. I think he was tired of keeping up the whole ruse. Like, he did have himself castrated in Tijuana because I think he was just kind of over, like, dealing with that. Having those feelings, yeah. Having those feelings. And so he said that the group was going to ascend, uh, took him out on one last farewell tour. They went to Vegas. They went to SeaWorld. They ate at Marie Callender's and then went home and uh, committed... Uh, a group suicide so uh that that's what happened and i've listened to the audio from a couple of the exit interviews basically that some of the members did Mm -hmm. and like there were definitely a couple of them who are like i don't really want to die but i feel like i have to but there were also members where you know influenced by you know 20 30 years of hanging out with apple white and nettles or not they seem like they were this was something that they really wanted. Like, they did not like the outside world anymore. And, like, Applewhite let them, like, go visit their families for, like, two weeks and stuff and, like, let them see the outside world. And I guess some of them just did not want to be there anymore. And I'm not saying that that's good. Um, But I also don't think it's, like, a Jonestown situation where Jim Jones, like, did murder all of those people. Yeah, no, that was very much a... Yeah, different. That, that both are bad in their yes, own way. But, they're both like, bad Jonestown was a completely different level but i'm also not willing to say that bonnie nettles and marshall applewhite are murderers i think that they are manipulative and they do have some fault here but i also am not like willing to be like they murdered those people they did not want to die because some of them i very much believe they did yeah and i also feel like it may not have gone off the rails the way it did if bonnie had lived which is my editorial like i feel like she was very much a stabilizing force she was um i think marshall marshall applewhite marshall was devastated when she died um because they were incredibly close and i think that that kind of pushed him off the rails so i mean heaven's gate is a very complicated one i know there was that podcast that heaven's gate yeah Yeah, it's just called heaven's gate guy um glenn washington yeah, and that was it was good. It was very informative, but it also interviewed the the family members a lot and it seemed to take a lot of opinions from the family members of the cult members, but it didn't really dig into the like the writings and stuff or like the interviews or you know that kind of stuff of the actual cult members. So I feel like it was a little one-sided in that respect. Yeah, um HBO also has a documentary. It's like three parts. That's pretty good. Cool. They do a lot of interviews with, like, the former members. And, of course, they're all the former members because they're the ones that are surviving. So yeah, they all, not everyone know, quit died. the group like, before it got to that point. But, uh, yeah, that's also, I would recommend if you want to, like, just do a deeper dive into Heaven's Gate in general. And, obviously, the, the last podcast series, if you're into into them, is really, really good. It's three parts. It's very in-depth. Um, and I think, because I did have that like Marshall Applewhite's a piece of shit like he did this to people and then I listened to something and like did some reading that was more objective so yeah I think Marshall Applewhite is as much a victim of his own psyche as yeah he was a guy who didn't fit in like he was he was gay in a time when it wasn't okay and he kind of internalized it it's not like Jeffrey Dauber, but it is that kind of, like, I feel a little bit softer towards him than I do, like... You can have empathy toward Marshall yeah. Applewhite. That's allowed. I wouldn't hang out with him. No, pass. But I, like, I understand. Well, now that we've had some very strong opinions. Fuck it. That's what this episode's for. Um, Now we're going to talk about one that there's really only one opinion to have. Oh, boy. Yeah, we are halfway through. This is one of those episodes where I could feel myself losing my mind as I was doing it. So we're going to talk about Sylvia Moraz or Moraz. Not a name I'm familiar with. Yeah, this there's time a for reason. real. Yep. 
So uh, this one is also really rough. Um, I would just tap out now. Just a warning. I So this is going to be on the shorter side. And I feel like I needed to do this one in order to uh, spit in the face of us spending that hour and a half last year making fun of the satanic panic. Because <laughs> it's not real. So most articles about this this woman are in Spanish. And the one good one in English was behind a paywall. <laughs> Motherfucker. So, thanks, Wikipedia and Murderpedia. Yeah, I was real pissed when that was behind a paywall. <laughs> I get, you should you should pay for journalism. They deserve it. But also, God, fuck paywalls. Yeah. Anyways. So, Sylvia Moraz is listed as a Mexican serial killer first, sect leader second. Boy. Which Those I are th- great titles to have. I think this is fair on account of how notable those things are in comparison to one another. <laughs> It's like, uh, God, I was looking up Leonard Lake, you Ugh, know, gross. and Wikipedia had him listed first as U.S. Marine. And I was like, that's not the story really? here. He was a radio technician in Vietnam. I think serial killer comes first. Burying the lead a little bit. All right. So this bitch, Sylvia, was born in 1968 in Hermosillo, Sonora, which is a very beautiful part of Mexico. Middle part, maybe? Anyway, so at age 16, she had her first son, Ramon, and she had three more children with her first husband and then a daughter with another partner. And this is only tangentially important. So at some point, Mraz became convinced that she could receive economic and spiritual favors if she offered human sacrifices to Santa Muerte. Oh, dear. And just a little background. uh, Santa Muerte is a folk saint. Kind of like in voodoo, you have, like, Papa Legba and whatnot. Um, so she is a quasi-deity that is the personification of death. She rules over healing, protection, and safe delivery to the afterlife. And the Catholic Church and other more evangelical versions of Christianity are not fans, but that hasn't stopped her from gaining a massive amount of followers in Mexico. There is, I'm pretty sure, an episode of Dark Tourist about... Kind of the festivals surrounding her. It's also, cool as shit. Dark, dark tourist. So while Santa Morte was originally a male figure, she now generally appears as a skeletal female figure in a long robe holding one or more objects such as a scythe and a globe. Uh, her robe can very be- much spooky Virgin Mary. Yeah, it's real dope. Um, her robe can be any color, um, but it, it can depend on the person who's making the picture and the rite being performed or whatever. So she has different outfits. Anyway, look at that. Technically, another female cult leader. (laughs) Uh, So Sylvia Mraz gained the following of about eight members, all her family, including four of her five children, Ramon, Francesca, Georgina, and Sylvia Jr., I guess, um, and her father, Cipriano, and her partner, Eduardo, and a woman named Zoila Santa Cruz, which is a great name. Like the crew. So together, they would commit three murders between 2009 and 2010. Oh, this is recent. Mm-hmm. So this is where you definitely need to skip ahead if you're squeamish. Because oh, boy. two of the victims were children, and they did not oh, hold back. Boy. So the first victim was Mraz's 55-year-old friend, Cleotilde Poncheo. Uh, Poncheco, sorry. Um, she was found dead in December of 2009. Uh, Cleotilde was a local woman who sold popsicles. She sounds very cute. I was going to say, that's literally just the most precious thing. Mraz later recounted that she had told Romero to pick up a 20 peso note off the ground, and when she bent down to pick it up, Sylvia struck her in the neck with an axe. Uh, She made an offering of the victim's blood in order to obtain protection on the part of Santa Muerte, and later burned and buried the decapitated corpse in the family home. This is your last warning, guys. The second victim was 10-year-old Martin Rios Chaparro Sanchez Urita, the biological son of Eduardo Sanchez and the adopted son of Silvia Moraz. He was murdered in June of 2010. Moraz later said that she had gotten the boy drunk and her youngest daughter, 13 at the time, stabbed him at least 30 times. Yike. In a ritual held while he was still alive, his veins were cut and his blood was spread around an altar. The final victim was Jesus Octavio Martinez Yanez, another 10-year-old boy. Uh, Martinez was the adopted son of Ivan Martin Baron Moraz, and therefore Moraz's grandson. He was murdered also in July of 2010. 
Uh, Moraz held Jesus in front of the altar while one of her daughters killed him. According to one of Zoila Santa Cruz's daughters, Moraz had threatened to kill them if they did not participate in the murder. That's grim. Yes. Uh, so the investigation into the murders began after Jesus's, Jesus was reported missing by his mother and her boyfriend, who were not involved, obviously. Uh, after two years of investigation, the Moraz family was implicated in the crime as the body of Martinez was found under the floor of Moraz's youngest daughter's bedroom. Yikes! The other two bodies were found in an unpopulated area northeast of Moraz's house. The state police discovered the bodies during an unrelated investigation, and Sylvia Moraz and the other seven involved uh, were arrested in March of 2012. Uh, Moraz received a prison sentence totaling 180 years, and the rest of the cult members were sentenced to 60 years, while the youngest daughter was sent to a youth detention center. Oh, good. <laughs> yeah. According to psychological evaluations, the 15-year-old girl, or the girl who was 15 at the time of the murders and participated in the cult from an early age, considered all these practices to be normal. Yeah. When you grow up with, like, again, when these are the only people around you and you don't have that kind of external feedback. Um, as a fun note to end this on, when I was looking up Sylvia Mraz. On the Googles, I found a listing for a child care provider named Sylvia Moraz in Dallas. Oh, dear. And the listing stipulated that she has a three-child limit. Oh, dear. That's unfortunate for her. Yeah, I changed my name at that point. Yeah. So that's the end of things being really rough. Thank God. I wanted to have a White Claw variety pack of female cult leaders to kind of show all of the different kinds. Do we get a fun one next? Just someone kind of cool and wacky? Yeah, I'll give her that. I, I actually, no, I like this lady. Um, she is the one that I got too deep on and had to, like, put off recording for a day so I could kind of collect myself. Because she is a big one. This is our heavy hitter for the episode. We are going to talk about Amy Semple McPherson. Oh, God, I was hoping she'd make an appearance. Oh, she was the reason I did this episode. So this bitch, like I said, is what we call a heavy hitter. <laughs> this bitch. She might also not be considered a cult leader in the strictest sense of the word because she was just doing Christianity Prime and no one got hurt. Well, no one physically and irreparably got hurt. Um, however, she has she has some like Joseph Smith, L. Ron Hubbard level charisma and flim flammery. Yeah, it's very... Uh... A long line of Christian grifters, I would say. Amy Semple McPherson is what I believe Jim Jones could have been if he hadn't lost his fucking mind. Because Jim Jones started doing integrated churches, like helping black members of the community, like get stuff done, like get their power turned back on if they need it. Like he was mm -hmm. doing good stuff. It wasn't for the right reasons, I don't think, but like he could have wasn't been. He also like on a lot of cocaine. <laughs> Um, he did... <sighs> fuck. What was he on? Not that that excuses anything no, no, no. he did, but just like... Well, no, he was actually doing it all on his own, and then there's kind of that cycle of, like, I have so much to do, I need to take an upper. Yeah. To, oh my god, I'm... It's like, uh, that episode of, uh, Saved by the Bell, <laughs> where Jesse <laughs> takes all the caffeine pills. Yep. So you have to take something as a downer, and then, like, I guess... That evened him out, but it wrecked his brain, and also it made his eyes bloodshot all the time, which is wore, why he wore, always wore sunglasses. Very cool. I think David Koresh always wore sunglasses just because he thought it looked cool. Why do we allow men to be in charge of things? We shouldn't. Amy Semple McPherson. I want to go on record right now as saying she is a weird person with some good ideas, but she also had some ideas about things that were very, very wrong. Because she was a very devout Christian, so inherently. And also, like, what, this is like the 1920s? Yes. But I do believe that at the very root of it, she was a good person. She had good intentions. Exactly. You're saying. Yes. I have no opinion, because I don't actually, it's been a while since I've read anything about her, but. You'll have an opinion in, like, eight paragraphs. Great. So Amy Kennedy was born in 1890 in Salford, Ontario, Canada. She's Canadian. That's why she's a good person. <laughs> Her mother, Mildred, was a very active member of the Salvation Army, which I found out is actually a Christian denomination. Really? Yeah. Um, and her father, which he's pretty much a non-entity in this story, was a devout Episcopalian. 
I would like to also say that I don't really know what the difference between like Baptists and Episcopalians and Pentecost. Well, I know kind of what Pentecostals Pentecostals are doing, but like Pentecostals have a whole thing. Yeah, uh, Seventh Day Adventist. I don't really know what the difference is here. Seventh Day Adventist are definitely the. Uh, they believe the Earth is literally six thousand years old. Mm-hmm. Not to say that none of the other sects don't uh, also have some of the share also those beliefs, but that I feel is the big one. Right. Actually, I had a boss who was a Seventh Day Adventist, and he was fucking crazy. Okay. Um, all right. So. Between the Salvation Army and the Episcopalianism, uh, this resulted in a daughter who was preaching sermons to her dolls. Yeah, that'll do it. And eventually she started writing letters to a Canadian paper expressing her concern with schools teaching evolution. (sighs) Yeah, Yeah. okay. Yeah, this is like my main sticking point with her, and also I'm pretty sure she was anti-abortion, but it was also the 20s, so who the fuck knows. We didn't get start getting weird about that until like mid-century. Yeah, no, that was... we're not going to talk about nope, it because we're not going to a rant. <laughs> yep. Um, so people from across the world replied to her letter about evolution and gave her her first taste of fame. Uh, so in 1908, she met and married a preacher named Robert Semple. And Semple supported them as a foundry worker and preached at the local Pentecostal mission. They studied the Bible together and moved to Chicago and joined Willem Durham's full gospel assembly. And Durham, who is an important man in the church scene in Chicago, uh, instructed Amy in the interpretation of tongues, which, if you're not familiar with the concept of speaking in tongues, it's a special brand of Christian flimflamery where the spirit of the Lord takes over your body and speaks to you through gibberish. I've always been confused. Is it... Are tongues supposed to be dead languages? Are like, is it really just gibberish? It's gibberish, man. And I mean... Yes, it's always gibberish. Is it supposed to be? <laughs> I I need to do more research on it. I could not go down that rabbit hole. Uh, maybe we'll do a mini on it later. Um, but it is mostly improv, and it is definitely something you can be good or bad at. Uh, just, I'll say this one line from Wikipedia, and then I'll drop it. The just. Uh, The definition there is speaking in tongues, also known as glossolalia, is a practice in which people utter words or speech-like sounds, often thought to be, often thought by believers to be languages unknown to the speaker. Yeah, it's kind of like automatic writing or drawing where you're just kind of scribbling and you, you know, it's all Yeah, you're so overtaken by the Holy Spirit that you just start, yeah. So anyways, uh, the Semples took a missionary trip to Hong Kong, where they both developed malaria, and Robert also contracted dysentery, uh, and he died just before Amy gave birth to her daughter, Roberta Starr Semple. Um, In 1912, while working with her mother at the Salvation Army in New York, she married Harold S. S. McPherson and later had a son named Rolf. Good name. Um, During this time, McPherson felt as though she was denied her calling to go and preach. And during this time, she struggled with depression and OCD. And in 1914, she fell seriously ill with appendicitis. She later stated that after a failed operation, she heard a voice asking her to go preach. And after accepting the voice's challenge, she said that she was able to turn over in her bed without pain. Now, this is a beautiful story, but I am also familiar with how Novocaine and like all those old timey painkillers work oh yeah she was zonked out of her out of her mind yeah so she probably like of course she thought she was having some sort of spiritual awakening and and turned over without pain so her marriage to mcpherson ended officially in 1921 after she uh turned to full-time evangelism and healing and by turn to full-time evangelism i mean that harold came home one day to find his wife and kids missing so so she just kind of she left. Took off. And then a few weeks later, she sent him a note. It specifically said a note inviting him to come hang out. <laughs> and to Harold's credit, he did. And he traveled around with the family in their, quote, gospel car, which was a convertible that Amy would preach out of the back of with a megaphone. <laughs> you gotta give her credit. That's that's some style. If nothing else, she knows how to get shit done. <laughs> Um, But in 1918, Harold wanted a more consistent life and started divorce proceedings on the grounds of abandonment, which was finalized in 21. Yeah, fair. Um, So Amy's first official sermon, I don't know what makes it official. I guess you're invited to a church. Um, So her first official sermon occurred at Mount Forest, Ontario in 1915. I know we're kind of jumping all over the place, but 
well, whatever. Um, so from the beginning, she worked in spiritual healing and encouraged speaking in tongues and other common elements of fundamentalism and Pentecostal Christianity. With her mom as a manager, she traveled across the United States and other countries, but from 1918, she made her headquarters in Los Angeles, where for almost 20 years, she preached to large audiences in the in Angeles Temple, which was built for $1.5 million via donations of monies, monies, goods, and services. And this was widely considered the first megachurch. Yeah, a woman did that shit. Hell yeah. So proud of her. Not really. <laughs> I don't know. I would be. She believed in something. She built it. They came. Um, it's also worth noting that she kind of tapped out of the speaking in tongues and like falling down with the presence of the Lord brand. <laughs> but she always had a separate tent set up at her revivals for people who wanted to do that. But she just <laughs> wanted to like keep it out of the vision of like the less enthusiastic people who might be scared of it. Because Pentecostals say, that's are intense. A, that can be kind of intense, yeah. Uh, so in 1923, the temple was dedicated as the Church of the Four Square Gospel, a name that derived from McPherson's vision of a four-faced creature she interpret, interpreted, I can speak, as Christ's fourfold role as Savior, Baptizer, Healer, and King. Okay. Yeah. Uh, based on tenets of hope and salvation for the needy, her church focused on handling a number of social issues that Christians today seem to ignore. Look, church isn't about social issues. It's about abortion. <laughs> ah, and the gays. Yep. Both are bad. So the church was open to all denominations and people, including people of color, which in 1923 is a big fucking deal. Yeah, I would say. Uh, McPherson mobilized people to get involved in charity and social work, saying that true Christianity is not only to be good, but to do good. She led relief for natural disaster victims, helped ex-convicts find jobs, started a group to sew clothing for impoverished families, opened a free clinic where medical professionals were trained to help children and the elderly, and even started a fund with utility companies to make sure that no one had their power turned off in the winter. I would love to see any of the mega churches currently in existence do any of this. <laughs> Correct. I keep thinking of the righteous gemstones and how far we've fallen. Yeah, I'm just thinking about like Joel Osteen, like not oh, God, even opening his church for ref yeah, like for natural disaster victims. Like this is the kind of yeah, mega church you see today. So in nineteen twenty seven, McPherson opened a commissary at Angelus Temple offering food, clothing, and blankets to everyone. She became active in creating soup kitchens, more clinics, and other charitable activities during the Great Depression, and fed an estimated 1.5 million people. When the government, well, you're making it really hard to dislike her. I know. I actually like her. Like that's where I am. Um, there is at no point where I was like, ah, shit. Except the evolution thing. <laughs> Um, so when the government shut down the free school lunch program in Los Angeles, McPherson took it over. So you just started feeding all the children in Los Angeles, essentially? She started paying for them to have free lunches, basically. Good Christ. So, yes. Um, in 1932, the commissary was raided by police, allegedly to locate a still used to make brandy out of donated apricots. Sure, Jan. Um, as a consequence, the commissary was briefly shut down and the staff was let go. But students from... Uh, Amy's Foursquare Gospel Church's Life Bible College filled in as volunteers. Um, because her programs, and this is where you're going to get mad, but not at Amy. Because her programs aided non-residents, such as migrants from other states and Mexico, she ran afoul of California state regulations. I don't know what those regulations are, but fuck them. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me that they would exist. So temple guidelines were later officially adjusted to accommodate those policies. Helping families in need was a priority, regardless of their residence. All right, so... Here's where we get into she's she's kind of showboaty. Like this is where the big like mega church factor really comes in. <laughs> Cuz Amy put on a fucking show. Oh yeah. So McPherson preached every night at the temple and Sunday services were attended by thousands of worshipers who were treated to theatrical performances that included patriotic and quasi-religious music played by a 50-piece band, prayers. Good Lord. <laughs> Prayers and singing topped off with one of Amy's signature sermons that often involves set pieces and costumes. <laughs> Look, if the priests I grew up with, like, utilized more costumes in their homilies, maybe I would have stayed with the church. I would kill for video of one of her, one of her sermons. 
Um, she also did participate in faith healing, which is an episode on its own, because, oh, oh man, I literally have who boy in my notes. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, there were some people, old white men, who called her too dramatic for the Lord, but attendance numbers don't lie. <laughs> people respond to this kind of thing. People respond to how genuine she was and how hard she believed in herself. And also, it didn't hurt that she was also really cute. I mean, that usually is part of the appeal. Never underestimate the power of a charismatic, cute white lady. I mean, look at that. Uh, what's her name? Um, Elizabeth Holmes? The one who made up that whole medical testing thing? Oh, yeah. I know. I'm, I am aware of Elizabeth Holmes. So, of course, the whole Foursquare church wasn't without sketchy bits. Like, the time that she organized a Bible parade to protest Darwinism being taught in schools. A Bible parade. Boy, that's a fun combination of words. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't have any details on, like, what the parade entailed, but I did picture a big float shaped like a Bible and her, like, standing between <laughs> the pages. Waving, like, Miss America. Oh, yes. Um, there was also the time that she might have faked her own kidnapping. This is what I know about Amy Simple McPherson. Or she might not have. This is, and I know this is going to be a weird comparison, but it definitely makes sense to me as a person living my life. It is a real Spider-Man J. Jonah Jameson situation. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay, so here's what happened in quotation marks. On May 18th, 1926, McPherson disappeared from Ocean Park Beach in Santa Monica. Presuming she had drowned, searchers searched the area, but they didn't find anything. She was said to be sighted all around the country, often miles apart, you know? Yeah. Like, always happens. Yeah. People will just call in bullshit. Oh, yeah. I saw a blonde white lady. Is that her? Probably not. Also, yeah, it's the 1920s, and how many people have actually seen a picture of her? Like, I know newspapers are around, but it isn't like TV these days where your image is plastered literally everywhere. Well, there was, um... With the Bell Gunnis story, like, someone had a tip and, like, some pictures of children, but, like, grown up, and someone was like, yeah, that's exactly what Bell Gunnis's children look like. And this is, like, 20 years after the fact. I'm like, you <laughs> sure. don't remember shit. <laughs> the uh, temple received calls and letters claiming knowledge, including ransom demands. And after weeks of unpromising leads, Mildred Kennedy believed her daughter was dead. So as the temple was preparing a memorial service on June 23rd, uh, Mildred received a phone call from Douglas, Arizona. McPherson was alive in in a Douglas hospital and telling her story to the officials. Interesting. Continue. Uh, So McPherson said that at the beach, she had been approached by a couple who wanted her to pray over their sick child, which isn't unbelievable. Not uncommon, I would imagine, for her either. Yeah. So after walking with them to their car, she was shoved inside, and a cloth laced with a drug was held against her face until she passed out. Eventually, she was moved to a shack in the Mexican desert. When her captors were away, McPherson escaped out a window and traveled through the desert for 11 to 13 hours, or an estimated 20 miles, before she reached Agua Prieta, Sonora, a Mexican border town. And I was wrong. Sonora is not in the middle of Mexico. (laughs) And this was at uh, about 1 a.m. Uh, She then collapsed at a nearby house and was taken uh, by the locals to Douglas, Arizona, which was the closest American town. Her return to Los Angeles was greeted by 30,000 to 50,000 people. I don't ever want that many people showing up for me for anything. Oh, just wait. It was a greater turnout than Woodrow Wilson's 1919 visit to Los Angeles. That doesn't surprise me. Woodrow Wilson was a drip. (laughs) (laughs) Los Angeles prosecutors had varying theories about why she disappeared, among them being a publicity stunt. Why can't I say that word? And they finally contended that McPherson ran off with a former employee, Kenneth Ormiston, and was staying with him at a California resort cottage that he had rented. This is kind of the story I tend to believe, is that she probably just, like, fucked off with a boyfriend for a couple of days and then, like, was not expecting... Uh, the attention that received. I'll, I'll get into the rest of the story in a second, but she did have a third husband uh, who was mm. an actor, and he fucked around on her, and she put a stop to that real quickly and divorced him. And then she refused to marry several other people because she was just kind of 
tired of it. Over it? Yeah, I don't blame her. So after leaving the cottage at the end of May, the pair traveled for the next three weeks and remained hidden. Around June 22nd, Ormiston drove McPherson to Mexico, dropped her off three miles outside of the town where she was found, and she walked the remaining distance. In contrast, McPherson maintained her kidnapping story, and defense witnesses corroborated her story. It gives me the same energy of, like, Agatha Christie's disappearance, which we should probably do a mini on or something. Probably, because I know uh, next to nothing about that. Oh, we'll make it a mini. And, and here's where stuff starts to fall apart. Much of the evidence asserted against McPherson came from reporters who passed it on to the police. And remember, this is the mm-hmm. 1920s when reporters just made shit up. Just made shit up all the time. The bulk of the investigation, and this is also where the J. Jonah Jameson parallel comes in. The bulk of the investigation against McPherson was funded by Los Angeles area newspapers and an estimated amount of $500,000. Bring me pictures of Amy Semple McPherson. <laughs> exactly. The secrecy of California's grand jury proceedings was ignored by both sides as the Los Angeles prosecution passed new developments to the press, while the evangelist used her radio sh- station to broadcast her side of the story. Which I think is a fair trade-off. <laughs> On November 3rd, uh, the case was moved to a jury trial set for January of 1927, charging McPherson, her mother, and other defendants with criminal conspiracy, perjury, and obstruction of justice. That's a little intense. Yeah, especially because no one really called the cops when she disappeared. I mean, I guess they were like, she is missing, and then she just didn't show up, and then she showed up again with a reason. I don't know. It all seems very suspect. And also not like all of these charges should be brought against them, especially her mother. Yeah, I would say there's no indication that her mother knew anything. So if convicted, she faced a maximum prison time of 42 years. However, the prosecution's case developed a credibility issue. Witnesses changed testimonies and evidence often appeared to have had suspicious origins or was mishandled and lost in custody. So on January 2nd, Ormiston, the man that she was supposed to have run away with, identified another woman as the woman that he had stayed with at the rental cottage. Scandal. All charges against McPherson. Well, they weren't even dating. He was just an employee at the church. Like, this other (laughs) lady was probably his actual girlfriend. All charges against her and associated parties were dropped for lack of evidence on January 10th. However, months of unfavorable news um, produced enduring public belief in McPherson's wrongdoing. Yeah. It's hard to come back from that. It's also worth noting that the press loved her until they didn't. The press will usually love you until they have a reason to, until or, it's more interesting to not do that. Exactly. Um, so they stopped focusing on her work and started printing stories about her issues with her family, which Amy did end up estranged from her mother and daughter over disputes with how the church was being run. There was also an issue with a former female preacher who said that Amy was spreading rumors about her, and there was a whole court case about it, but they settled. Anyway, so they also definitely made shit up about her having affairs. Um, There was also, she did kind of like a, I can't think of the word, like a tour to kind of hype people back up again. And she ended up- A comeback tour. A comeback tour. And she ended up preaching at this bar in a town in um, Texas. And, like, she did her thing, she talked to people, but then the story ran papers of her drinking and dancing and smoking. Of course. All right. So, by 1944, the Foursquare Gospel Movement had grown to include 400-plus branches in the United States and Canada, nearly 200 missions abroad, with membership numbering around 22,000. Her Bible college... Yeah. Her Bible college, found in 1923... And from 1926, housed in the Lighthouse of International Foursquare Evangelism next to the temple, had graduated more than 3,000 evangelists and missionaries. Eventually, after some aforementioned mediocre attempts to revive her career, McPherson died from an overdose, mostly uh, probably accidental, um, in 1944. An overdose of what? Uh, s- uh, sleeping pills. Sorry. Oof. Yeah. She was on a lot of different pills later in her life. Um, and the theory is that she just, like, accidentally took too much. Uh, no one yeah. seems to believe that she would do it on purpose. Um, but her son, Rolf, continued the movement. And as far as I know, Foursquare churches still exist to this day, though not quite in the same... I say not quite the same kind of prominence, but... Yeah. Um, so th- that's, that's female cult leaders. <laughs> that's 
not all of them, like I said. There were some that got cut uh, for time, but, you know, there's your primer on, like, one of each flavor of female cult leader. <laughs> well, that's certainly more entertaining than learning about just men leading cults, which... Yeah. T- kind of well, tired. I like lis- like hearing about cults because... I don't know. They're all so weird. Like even like it's, the super Christian ones are just fucking weird. Like someone, someone's brain came up with this, but the female <laughs> ones get me because uh, what with the exception of a few, I, th- I think they're more likely to actually believe in their own bullshit. Yeah. As opposed to like, you can see that keeping it up because they want the power. Like I know some male cult leaders are like, I know this is full of shit, but I like banging yeah. all these chicks. Or you have, like, Manson, who was just struggling to keep a just hold a of things. Just a piece of garbage. <laughs> which, I don't really consider the Manson family a cult. No. It's more of no, a, just... It's a collection of weirdos who believe some stuff, but I don't... I think there's miles of difference between, like, him and, like, Jim Jones's, like, tiered right. organization. Very... A very loose cult, if a cult at all. Yeah. Um, I also found that... Cults led by women tend to have weirder beliefs. Like, if you look at Heaven's Gate, or if you look at, I don't know if you've heard about this Love Has One cult where the leader was just found dead and, like, mummified in someone's home. Oh, vaguely, yes. I haven't yeah. really done a deep dive into that, but I've, I've heard it, yeah. But, like, all of these new age ladies who, like, pull shit out of their, that's bad phrasing, they, they, it's just, just a little more creative. Than- yeah. And I'm not saying that's good. I'm just saying, like, they have beliefs, and I think that they believe in them very hard, which makes mm-hmm. people believe in them. And then it kind of spirals, or it doesn't spiral, and it all kind of works out. Or you end up mummified in the desert. Yeah, there's also that. Or you end up going to prison for 180 years because you murdered a bunch of kids. Or you just have a mega church in Los Angeles. like, Because, I mean, there are very few cults that have reached that level. Yeah. It's like Scientology and Mormonism, and I guess Jesus could technically technically be considered the original cult leader. But anyway, I I don't know. I, I found it very interesting. Uh, there are definitely similarities, but I also have to respect that only one of the cults that I mentioned really spiraled out of control, and I think that one was just unbridled mental illness as opposed to, like, yeah, suspect behavior. Yeah, fair enough. I have no voice left because I talk for an hour at therapy and then I talk for an hour and a half about ladies. <laughs> I would do the spiel for you, but I don't know it. No, I got it. Um, That's your job. If you have a favorite female cult leader, you can tell us uh, on Instagram and Twitter at Afternoonified. Um, get Afternoonified.com where you can email us. You can listen to past episodes. You can buy merch. Um, all merch proceeds are still going to Black Lives Matter. Um, Fuck. Oh, remember to rate, subscribe, review, all of that good stuff. And um, well, we have like one one more episode before we get into spooky season. I just had the calendar up, but yes, uh, yeah. we're actually going to do stuff for for Halloween this year. <laughs> I mean, a lot of the later half of this season will be spooky. <laughs> yeah, we're so. really leaning into that. Um, I don't know. We do what's fun, but if you have things that you'd like to hear us talk about, let us know. We're always open to requests. All right, guys. Goodbye. Bye. We love you. What up, So Below listeners? It's your boy Shane Hosey, and I want to tell you a little bit about my podcast, The Hosey Hustle. Every other week I sit down with a guest and we talk about product and service submissions from you, the listener. Terrible ideas, like cigarettes for dogs. And we'll sit there and we'll talk about how to make them ready for the big, scary economy. Basically, we take bad ideas and we make them worse. So why don't you give us a listen? The Hosey Hustle, part of So Below Media. Now get back to the show you were originally listening to. You probably like it a lot. For more podcasts like the one you just listened to, go to SoBelowMedia.com. This, this is As Above, So Below.